Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome to another program in the series Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka. I'm Patrick Boyer, and as you know, this year, each month, we're talking about uh, Indigenous subjects. In Canada, the term Indigenous people refers to First Nation, Innu, and Métis communities. To be clear, these are people formerly called by settler society Indians, Eskimos, and half-breeds. In addition to human and cultural dimensions of life that Indigenous people have in common, important differences distinguish them, even sometimes separate them. The most fundamental of these differences is land, land on which Indigenous people live. This becomes really complicated because Indigenous land is also territory on which settlers live. In the Canadian North, for example, Innu kept control over much of their territory in Nunavut by surrendering a large part of it to the federal government, a land deal criticized by First Nations and Innu elsewhere. In the Northwest Territories, both First Nations, Innu, and Métis are dominant players in government with control over land use policies. Yukon society is a rich mixture of indigenous people, specific lands yet intermingled with general society. Across Canada, south of the territories, the well-known essential bond between First Nations and their land is fraught with complexities to which are added the relationships Métis and First Nations have when it comes to land. These relationships vary from province to province, involve many different First Nations and Métis communities, and depend on when and how settlers came onto Indigenous territory. Much land was transferred to the crown under treaties. But there are also significant tracts of unceded land. In many scattered areas are land reserves, each inhabited by particular First Nation community. Complex issues endure about treaty rights and the status of First Nation community members including in relation to whether they live on or off reserve. Now, what about Métis people? The Métis are a distinct society in Canada 
with their own language, culture, and traditions. But where is their land? There are national, provincial, and regional organizations of the Métis Nation, but the idea of a nation includes people who are land-based, who occupy and control their own territory. Only in Alberta are lands designated for exclusive use of Métis people, akin to reserves for First Nations. This has evolved in Alberta since 1928, and today there are five such Métis Nation territories under Alberta statute law. Nowhere else in Canada is it that clear. Which brings us to a major issue, central to Indigenous life in the country. It is coming into sharper focus as Métis society and its organizations continue emerging into greater prominence with clearer aspirations for recognition and for land. On June 21st, I was in Midland discussing these issues with members of the Georgian Bay Métis Council in particular, the council's hard-working president, Greg Garrett. His role is significant. During the Canadian census in 2021, 134,615 individuals in Ontario identified themselves to census takers as Métis. So, round that off to 130 in Ontario today. This is the largest population of Métis in Canada. And overwhelmingly, they dwell along the Georgian Bay coast, including Muskoka, which has its own Moon River Métis Council. On that same day, June 21st, over in Ottawa, Crown and Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller introduced Bill C-53 in the House of Commons. It provides self-government for Métis nations in Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, implementing treaties made with those Métis governments. But First Nation organizations began protesting this measure. The tug of war between Indigenous communities in Canada has now started to become more public. For Muskoka and our larger Georgian Bay community, this is significant because it affects real people and actual lands. Land claims of Indigenous nations overlap. When the Crown settles these claims with a particular First Nation, it can be at the expense of Métis claims for the same territory. For instance, settlement of claims by the Watamohawks, explains Métis leader Greg Garrett, excluded participation of the Métis nation also having claims. What claims? Well, very clear ones made by the historic Georgian Bay Métis community running back two centuries. 
And when Britain was on the brink of losing the War of 1812 as American forces invaded Canada, the tide of battle was turned by Indigenous warriors, both First Nation and Métis, fighting on the side of the British crown. When the Treaty of Ghent was negotiated to end that war in 1814, it revised boundary lines between Canada and the United States. This was uh, just one more stage in the struggle underway since the 1600s and 1700s in the Michilimackinac area between Lakes Huron and Michigan, as forts and settlements were conquered and reclaimed in battles between the French, British, and the Americans, depending on the period. A civilian population developed in the garrison town around the forts. As soldiers and First Nation women intermingled, children of mixed blood continued to arrive and Métis families became part of these communities. In 1812, the British and 189 Métis voyagers fighting alongside with them, giving the necessary strength to them, recaptured Mackinac Island and their fort. But after the war, the Americans got Mackinac back and burned the fort while the British and civilians moved to immense Drummond Island at the head of Lake Huron. By 1829, for strategic reasons, the British ceded Drummond Island to the United States and relocated their military and naval base to Penetanguishene Bay at the southern end of Lake Huron. The civilians chose to leave Drummond Island rather than live under American control, and 75 families, numbering 188 people, including many Métis, made their own way down to Penetang as well. Métis people, of course, had already been in this area, including Muskoka, since the 1600s when French fur traders arrived and paired with First Nation women. The Drummond Island arrivals had to fend for themselves, despite the British having made it clear, especially to the high-value Métis, that they would have land where they were going. By the 1840s, as settlers began encroaching on the land Métis did have, a number petitioned the government for Métis-designated land that would be protected. That did not happen. But waves of development and settlement continued. After a brief station break, we'll pick up this story and how it is playing out today. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer, and we're looking today at the unfolding saga of lambs in Ontario and around Georgian Bay, where Métis people are seeking 
greater recognition and self-government. The saga of how this is currently playing out between Métis and First Nations and between them and non-Indigenous society at least now occurs in a context established by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2003. The court recognized in that decision and established in that decision the framework for recognizing Métis rights that are protected by Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982, the Charter of Rights. It is also taking shape in a new context of Canadian public recognition of Indigenous lands being taken over by settler society. This is highlighted by the words of our national anthem, O Canada. Since the anthem was first written in 1880 in French, it has had many English translations and variations. One tweak added God to replace the more ambiguous spiritual reference, thou. Another time, uh, at, or at the time, another change at the time of the First World War added, in all thy son's command to encourage patriotic enlistment of young men. In 2016, that was replaced by gender, gender neutral in all of us command. Now, another worthy adjustment is in the works. Julie Black, like all Canadians, and especially singers who memorize and live with lyrics, took note of that change in 2016. After all, for more than a century, women have been recognized as equal players with legal rights and leadership accomplishments, going where there was no path and leaving a trail for others to fall. So, as Canadians now sing, in all of us command, that again includes everyone in the country, not just males. And it registered that the national anthem, like our constitution itself, is not chiseled in granite. It, like the constitution, is a living thing, growing with the country itself. Grammy Award-winning Julie Black sings her heartfelt rendition of the National Anthem with the change of just a single, small word. What was our home and native land comes singing from her heart and mind as our home on native land. As a Canadian-born Black woman, she has had to be alert to words and their meanings in a multicultural society that still suffers outdated institutional relationships and the behaviors born of them. Julie's parents immigrated, immigrated to this country, so she understood that Canada was not their native land in either sense of the word, being native to the place or being an Indigenous person. In addition, Julie Black, like many Canadians, has been on a sharp learning curve about Indigenous realities. 
It was the shocking realization that residential schools had graveyards for their pupils that finally registered in people's emotions a travesty that had not touched their minds. What neighborhood public schools have cemeteries to bury kids attending them in unmarked graves? This reality has long been understood by Indigenous people in Canada and documented in reports, articles, films, and books. Yet for years in political Ottawa, Indigenous issues were a toxic topic. In the 1950s, Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent, who had been Canada's Minister of Justice on his way to the top, learned, when it came to light in the newspapers, that Innu people in James Bay communities were starving to death. We have been governing the North, he offered, like a confession, in a state of benign neglect. Benign neglect is a poetic phrase for how others excuse a grave problem by shrugging. Out of sight, out of mind. Didn't know about it. Didn't think about it because I didn't see it. But as Christopher Stock, a knowledge keeper, a knowledge keeping member of the Wanta Mohawk community in Muskoka, explains, you were not supposed to know. It was kept from you. And he's right. From school curriculums to debates in the House of Commons, from radio broadcasts to pulpits, from documentary films to newspapers, decades of Canadian life were narrow cast. All of which led to Julie Black's understanding that upgrades can be made to keep songs relevant that we can end the charade of singing with somber gravitas, lyrics that are not truths, but taunts. Even so, sensitivity in such matters does not allow individuals to think or speak on behalf of others. So, she asked Indigenous people what they thought about the small but mighty change she envisaged in the anthem. They chuckled in approval. They solemnly supported her. She first sang it publicly as our home on native land at the opening of an NBA game. And when she sang the anthem that way, slowing it down so nobody could mistake it, looking directly into a television camera recording the event, Julie Black opened the next round in eradicating stale inaccuracy from common usage. Three months ago, in a deeply moving blanketing ceremony at Ottawa, a special assembly of national chiefs honored Julie Black by presenting her an eagle feather. Last week, she sang the new version of her national anthem at Metropolitan University's inaugural convocation of law students in Toronto. Again, Canadians across the land heard it and heard about it. There is still unfinished business in having an anthem in phase with the country whose people are to sing it. The native land expression, as Julie Black and others have pointed out, 
is meaningless to millions of Canadians and landed immigrants who have arrived from other countries because they wanted or needed to come to a new homeland, who, given an option, chose Canada. From Governor General Adrian Clarkson to Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow, who are matched by thousands of others at the summit of Canadian society, who also came to this country as youngsters or young adults, Canada is not their native land, but their chosen land. Few in Canada are unaware of land claims, trespass issues when non-Indigenous people encroach upon native lands, and the blockades and pushbacks. People know about Indian reserves, lands onto which First Nations were relocated to make space for the Crown and settlers who acquired Crown lands by purchase or free grant. From the mid-1800s, Muskoka was developed by settlers who acquired squatters' rights simply by occupying land, by those who got free land with a Crown patent, and by others who bought land from the Crown in fee simple. We live on traditional indigenous lands. There is molten lava in the Canadian land volcano. Singer Julie Black has uncorked it. Good for her. Let us sing our national anthem the new way, enjoying both the humor and solemnity in recognizing reality. Thank you for listening. I'm Patrick Boyer.